that is considered by church historians to be the least significant of the deadly sins, which is lust. Then we move to gluttony, and we talked about this like pursuit, this never-ending pursuit of more. And that uh, in that idea of gluttony, we really tried to stress that it's not the thing that you're pursuing. It's not the food. It's not the st- whatever it is that's filling that void. It's actually the thing behind the thing. Like, what are you really craving when it comes to gluttony? That's the thing that we need to be addressing and talking about as a community and as individuals. And this uh, particular week, it is greed. The more that I've uh, thought about the seven deadly sins, I wanted to kind of right from the beginning just commend all of you. Uh, and here's, here's why I want to do it. There's this little quote that I came across a couple weeks ago that I think speaks volumes. It says this, The unmasking of idols will always be received badly by society at large, for people do not appreciate it when, the things, they, when things they hold to be sacred are portrayed as lacking in substance and benefit. To threaten the position of the gods is to threaten the security of the worshiper. To set out to unmask idols will only ever bring pain. The idea is the seven deadly sins have always been a replacement of God, an idol that we have somehow switched out who God is being central in our life and have placed whatever it is, whether it's greed or lust or gluttony, the ones we've covered so far, whether it's envy or pride, those things end up in some way replacing uh, who Christ is at the center of our life. And so I want to commend you in this sense, that uh, the conversations that we've been having, the openness and transparency you've had about the subjects of lust or about gluttony, the kind of uh, discussions that we know are happening in small groups as we've been talking with group leaders, uh, indicate that we have been so far a community that is willing to go into those places that maybe are a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, We've been willing to kind of root out maybe some of that idolatry in our heart. Uh, We've tried to dig out kind of some of that stuff that God is doing a refining work in us. And that's our hope, that God will continue to work and move in us as we cover each of these subjects over the next few weeks. Um, This morning... It's going to be a little bit different in the sense that uh, my hope is to set up our time uh, completely for small group interaction, for one-on-one interaction, for getting together with two or three three friends to talk about this subject of greed. Um, This will not be the be-all, end-all on the subject this morning. It's not intended to give you uh, one specific answer on how to greed out of your life, but rather to create this broader conversation that will enable us as group leaders and individuals to really tackle this topic. So it actually will only be successful this morning if, one, we're willing to talk about it beyond this time, two, uh, that we're actually willing to engage in our time this morning. I'll be asking you questions, hoping for feedback and response, and we'll have more of a conversation is my hope. All right? So... Uh, We'll start with this. Um, I think in talking about greed, it's important for us first to define it. So why don't you help me define it? What is, or how do you understand what greed is? How would you define greed? 
this, in case you were unaware, this is the part where I ask a question and then you respond with an answer. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can just shout it out. Okay, wanting something more than you need it. Good. What else? How would you add to that? Selfish, never being satisfied. Good. Worshiping money. Good. Unwilling to share. At the expense of others. Good. Always wanting more. Excessive desire for material gain. Absolutely. Those are excellent definitions. I went with the most solid definition from Google. It says, uh, it says this, an intense and selfish desire for something, especially for wealth or material gain. If you consider it from a biblical perspective, the concept simply means this, to have more, to want more, to continue to pursue more, more possessions, more money, more stuff, more material gain, more wealth. Uh, Aquinas defined it as this, greed is an excessive love of or desire for money or any possession money can buy. It's this hunger for something, and specifically for wealth or resources or stuff. So the question then becomes, if that's what it's about, why does it even matter? Why does it matter that we talk about this subject? And I think one of the main reasons it matters is because of all of the subjects found in Scripture to talk about, one of the things that Christ speaks about most frequently is money. Money, possessions, stuff, greed. In fact, uh, there's no shortage of biblical material. I think there's over 2,300 verses that specifically relate to money. One third of all of Jesus' parables that are recorded in the scriptures are about this subject of money or of greed or of possession. Uh, some suggest even that one out of every six lines in the Gospel of Luke or one out of every ten lines in the entire Bible is about generosity, about the use of our resources, about caring for others in need, anything around that subject of generosity and of greed, one out of every ten verses in the entire Bible. So there is certainly a focus on money in the Scriptures, a focus on generosity, a focus on possessions, on greed. So it is a subject that I think demands deep attention from us, especially given the particular culture we're from. The amount of warnings pertaining to greed in the scriptures are pretty profound. Here's what I want uh, us to do for a moment, is to come up with a few of those warnings. All of you are biblical scholars, all different shapes and sizes. You've read the scriptures many times. And here's the question. What are some of the biblical warnings that you can recall off the top of your head about money. Maybe it's a particular verse that you can remember. Maybe it's a particular phrase found in the scriptures that relates to this concept of money, the use of money, greed, love money, that kind of stuff. You tell me what are some of those. And we'll go through. I've written down five, but there's plenty more than that. So share a few of them with me. Okay, good. One cannot serve two masters. Okay, you've heard the phrase. I'll stop on that one for a second. 
you've heard the phrase that says something along the lines of uh, you have to choose between God or mammon is the word, right? God or money, right? That it's one or the other. In fact, the phrase says this, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I love the inclusiveness of this particular verse, right? No one. It wasn't like most people can't pull this off. No one. No one that tries can serve both. You will either love the one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But all of the language is kind of around this idea that you have to choose the God you'll worship. You have to choose the whether to follow Yahweh or to follow an idol of money, of resources. And it's one or the other, right? And, and I think the reason he paints that like one or the other picture is simply because greed in many ways, or the love of money, the desire for money, often is the one, at least I think in most of our lives, replaces the things and the value and the trust and security that we tend to place in God. So if you think about that relationship you have with God, and you think about the dependence you put on God, a lot of times we replace that with a dependence on money or resources. That it, I look at my bank account, and by what's in my bank account, I feel a confidence about decisions I'm about to make rather than making those decisions out of faith or making those decisions out of principle or out of obedience. It's made out of dependence on something else. Maybe your security. For some of you, money becomes a security thing. And there's fear that builds up. But then when I can realize I'm getting in a certain amount of money every month, or I guaranteed a particular job, or those kinds of things produce a certain amount of security or dependence. Some of us define our purpose, our very reason for existence, on the job we do, not for the job and its purpose, but more for what it produces for us, what we can acquire in light of the job. So it tends to be one that replaces God the most. So good, that's a first one. Someone give me another. Absolutely, it is easier. It's like one of my favorite growing up. I was always like, ah, oh, it'd be cool to like actually try this, to see if a camel could fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's in Matthew 19. It says this, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, and I love this statement, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then? Who then can be saved? It's, it, it was almost this sense of like, are you kidding? This is impossible. What, are we, what is happening? And if you consider this passage, I think in many ways it's a pretty sobering statement, right? It's a statement he made in an agrarian culture that didn't have great wealth and that lived from year to year based on what it created or produced from the land. We don't live in that same kind of environment and yet the same statement rings true, right? So essentially, you could say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for Russ to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
right? Because statistically, if you make $23,000 a year, and in our minds, we go 23, and some of you go, wow, that's a lot. I mean, I'm in college, and my tuition's more than that a year. So I kind of feel like I'm losing money every year. But they tell me it's going to pay off at the end, is what I hear, right? Um, but you hear that number, and some of you go, wow, that's a really low number. I mean, that's far below poverty line in terms of, like, if you have a family of four, that's well below poverty line. And yet, if you have that and you put it in the context of not just your neighbor, not just your dorm roommate, or not just your friends at school or whatever, um, you are, if you have that number, you are in the top 2.5% of all people in the entire world in terms of income. Like you are among the rich. If you make 33000 a year, you're in the top 1% of all the people in the world. So when you put those numbers in context, right, we start to go, like, actually, this is a passage written to me. It's easier for me, right? It's easier for Camel than for me to enter to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because this thing called greed can begin to sap at who we are as people. That's good. That's two. Give me another one. Good, good. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's a conversation directly with the rich young ruler, right? And so he's having this conversation, and the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And have you ever noticed, do this study sometime, uh, every time Jesus is asked that same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what must I do to get to heaven? Or what must I do to uh, be right with God? Or what must I do, right? Like all those things that we kind of associate with a right standing before God or a relationship with God, here's the key. He never gives the same answer twice. Now, if you asked someone you know, what must I do to get into heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, there's this standard answer, right? It's the standard Christian 101 answer. Like, well, you do this, followed by this, then do this, and you're good, right? And what Jesus, every single time, he answers differently. And specifically to the person whose heart he could tell was captivated with money. Sell what you have. Give to the poor. Absolutely. What's another one? Yeah, absolutely. Love of money. First Timothy 6. The love of money is the root of all evil. And I would, I would say this. Some have concluded that of all the deadly sins, this is the one they think is the most significant because they think it is that root that ultimately that greed leads to lust. That greed leads to gluttony. That greed leads to pride. Uh, others would say pride is, and honestly, we don't need to argue. But the idea is that, yeah, it, there is something about money that affection and love goes toward it in ways that lead toward really not so good things. Good. Someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I think you're referring to First John chapter 2. Uh, do not love the world or anything of the world, but anyone who loves the world. Uh, it's the cravings of sinful man, the desire of the flesh, the pride of life. It's those things 
And part of that craving that we're talking about is that greed. That's that desire for worldly possession and worldly stuff, right? Which is interesting in this side note, and I don't have time to get into it, but if you look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, same three things. If you look at the Old Testament and when it brings up things in three, like uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, or um, he's shown you a man was good, what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly? All of those things kind of throughout Scripture are pretty interwoven. Uh, and it's those base desires of who we are as people. It's good. It's good. Um, a couple others. What else? Excellent. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Right? This very idea that like, you, might pursue, you might actually accomplish all you wanted to accomplish in this pursuit of greed or this pursuit of stuff, and yet in the midst of it, you may have lost your very soul. Right? Good, good. I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you another one that uh, often comes up. Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this little phrase, uh, really it's read more like this, do not ever treasure up treasures for yourself. And it's emphatic in the do not ever. It's like do not, do not ever do this. Do not ever store up treasures. It, it's funny, I was thinking this morning even, um, just how, if that phrase was stated about any other subject besides like money, we would probably be quoting it all the time. Like I was thinking if my kids, if the text said, do not ever, no never, eat vegetables, like there's no doubt my kids would have that passage memorized. It'd be the one time they would be like, I'm a biblical literalist. Whatever it says, mom and dad, we got to follow it, right? They'd be like, preach it, right? Or if it was like, do not ever, no never, fold laundry, I mean, there would be a lot of us that would go, okay, yeah, that sounds good, right? But when it comes to this subject, do not ever, no never, store up treasures for yourself on earth. Don't depend on those. Don't make that the source of your life, the direction but rather store up treasures in heaven. Defer toward the future. There's many others. We won't get into all of them. Uh, there's one in Malachi about robbing God, uh, and that basically the idea being that if whatever you have is a gift from God, so anything you don't give back in some way is a bit of robbing. It's stealing from him and what he particularly owns. All of those ways of describing and understanding the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the scriptures related to money, usually cause us to say, okay, greed is not good. But I think we would probably have to argue that most of what we do when we say that is we have one solution. You know, we, we'll tell stories like, uh, there's a story, Leo Tolstoy has this amazing short story of a man who is told he could have as much land as his eye could see he could walk and mark out the boundaries of that for $1,000, right? And uh, all he has to do is walk it off and be back to the same space by the end of the day. And so he sets off early in the morning, and he goes as far as he can, seeing where the sun is, and he marks a corner of his boundary, and he keeps walking. And 
all the way till the point where he's like, oh no, I'm running out of time. If I'm not there before the sun sets, the deal's off. I lose my money. I lose the land. And so he begins to like sprint with everything he has. He's running through this uh, hot and arid place. But the land that he has been seeing is so good. And so he just like, if I mark it out a little further, and then he just finally, as the sun sets, he just gets there in time to reach out his hand and grab the money, grab the hat of the landowner. And he's like, yes, like I got all the land I need. This is awesome. And then, as you know, these stories go, he passes away because his heart stops. He's so fatigued from the day he dies. And the last like phrase of Tolstoy's story is um, that all he needed was six feet from his head to his heels. And the title of the story is How Much Land Does a Man Need? What does he need? Six feet. That's it, right? And that there's this pursuit in us. So we, we talk about stories. We talk about greed in those particular ways. But here's the thing. I think when we talk about it that way, what we tend to do is always end with one solution. And the solution is this. Stop it. Just no. Don't. No greed. Just don't do it. Don't be greedy. It's like, well, you heard Tolstoy, it'll kill you. Don't do it. And like, that's the only solution. The only way we talk about it. So it's just prohibitive. It's just, and there usually is not a lot of conversation around how. How do you really go about stepping away from greed? How do you really go about pursuing something else? There's that idea in scripture, kind of called the replacement principle. Instead of doing this, how do I then reorient and replace it with this? And what does that look like? And what do I really replace it with? So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so. And just on a sheet of paper, jot down. If I had to replace greed in my life with something, what is the thing, or how do I go about, what are the means that the scriptures teach to go about replacing this idea of greed? There's all kinds of, I'm going to give you a few to discuss as a small group, but what would you do, what did the scriptures speak to in terms of the solutions to greed? All right, I'll give you about 30 seconds or so to do it, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through a few of them. You can talk with a neighbor. You can just jot it down on your own. It's up to you. All right. I know I have uh, not nearly given you enough time uh, to discuss it or enough time to write it down. But I wanted you to get into the idea of thinking. What, what simply does the scriptures say about the solutions? How do we walk away from a life of greed and into a different trajectory uh, for our life. And what I want to do is just give you, since we talked about numerous ways in which the scriptures teach, I want to give you five quick ideas. And each of these, and I'm not going into them in great length, the idea would be uh, that your small group leader will receive a set of questions and you guys can interact more deeply on each of these subjects. Because I think, and my hope is, that each one of us in here would be at least reminded or understand maybe for the first time one of them in a way that, they, that it resonates with them and says this would be the way in which I could see myself stepping out of greed as an idol and moving into a different posture with my resources, with my time, my energy, okay? So the first one 
And many of you have probably wrote this one down as contentment, the idea of a contentment, right? Uh, many would say an opposite of greed would be the virtue of contentment. In uh, Philippians chapter 4, there's this fascinating section, Paul's speaking, and he says, Not only am I speaking of being need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he says at the heart of it, I found contentment. The interesting thing, and many of you probably know the exact verse after this one, and that is this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not a verse on how to get through the end of your marathon or how to lift some significant sets of weights, right? And you may have quoted to that yourself. This is like, I've learned that through the strength of Christ that I can be content no matter what I have. No matter what I've been given, no matter what circumstances I'm going through, and specifically as it relates to resource, because that's what he's talking to. I have learned to be content. Chesterton talks about it as true contentment is a real active virtue. It requires something of you. And so this is a a reminder to step into that idea. And so discussion points will be around this idea of what does contentment look like and how do I lean into it and what does it mean for me to pursue it, all right? Uh, The second passage and second idea, uh, this passage I think gives us two things. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich, that's us in this present age. As for the rich... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I think there's two big ideas in here. The first one is this idea of trust. If you want to replace greed in your life, you have to replace it with trust in Christ, right? Trust in God. He says right at the beginning that they set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead to set their hopes on God, right? To to completely shift the focus off the bank account, the statement, the amount of money coming in on a monthly basis, the trust fund, the whatever it is that you have that is providing security in some sort, or, or you think provides security. It is in that moment that we have to reorient toward putting our complete trust in God. It is full dependence on Him that allows us to step, I think, away from the vice of greed. When you think about where your security lies, it, it amazes me how often we put our security in things that make absolutely no sense. They make no sense. When it's not just money. It's like we, we put our security in, in things that, that if we think about it for just a moment, we realize that it's far more tenuous, life is in general, right, than we would like to make it out to be. We feel so confident, and yet our confidence can only rest in Christ to give true confidence. In Philippians 419, it even says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. It's according, that idea that based on how much 
of his riches he has, which is everything. That, that's how he will supply your needs. What you need, he will take care of. So there's that baseline trust. But the second thing this passage speaks to is the idea of generosity. That we're actually to be people that move away from greed and move into generosity. It says that, as for the rich, charge them to be generous and ready to share so that they store up treasures for themselves, but also so that they take hold of that which is truly life. And he writes, as the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Not just like a little bit of generous, like an absurd amount of generous. And really, if you, if you think about it, the kingdom that he is calling us all into, the way in which he wants us to orient our life around his, seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added unto you, that idea requires absurd generosity. It requires that you go above and beyond what you imagine. In Scripture, it even starts with this idea, they, they call it the first fruits. And the first fruits is an agrarian term that basically means that when you reap what you've received from the land, from whatever, that you give back immediately a tenth of everything you've reaped. That's what the scriptures speak to, that idea, right? But then when you come to the New Testament, it speaks to this idea that above and beyond that, that you be generous. In fact, Richard Foster made the statement that the tithe, or 10%, simply is not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree, unconcerned for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. I think far too often... In the Christian church, and far too often in our lives, there is a tendency for us to be so focused on the 10%, what we're giving and its generosity, that we forget that what God really is also concerned about is the other 90%. That he owns all of it, and so his concern isn't just like, oh, you checked off the 10% box, way to go. He's also asking the question, what's happening with the rest of everything? Or if we put it in American terms... He's not asking what the 2.3% that you're giving away is really about. He's asking about the other 97.7%. What are you doing with that? Are you stewarding that in a way? Are you recognizing that that is all mine as well? And that you have a responsibility in the midst of that to steward and be generous and faithful and loving and caring with your resources. They're not just yours or just mine to play with. In fact, it has been said that God views what you give by what you keep. Listen to that again. God views what you give by what you keep. And that's a challenging, challenging concept. Paul even speaks to this idea. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, But as for you, excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act, this idea of giving, of grace also. He's speaking to the idea that you can excel in all those things, but if you're also missing excelling in generosity, then it is so easy for us to turn our affection back toward what do I get out of this, right? What's in it for me? Rather than this posture of going out. Uh, The fourth one, Christ. Christ, it seems a simple one, right? Then instead of making the focus greed, make your focus Christ. 
In uh, Hebrews 13.5, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's interesting to me in this passage is that Jesus, through the scriptures, is saying this. In order to be content and in order to keep your life free from the love of money, let me give you a reason. And the reason is, I will never leave you or forsake you. The reason is, Christ is saying, me. I'm the reason you don't have to have a love for money. I'm the reason you can have contentment. I'm the reason you do not need to fear about your future. I'm the reason for all of those things that you're beginning to wonder or question about. I'm the answer to all of it. And he says it so emphatically. In the Greek, it's like five negatives in the statement over and over and over. So you could read it this way. He will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. It's not just like, hey, I, I'm not going to leave you. But it's like those moments when you, you say to your kid, like, hey, like, go right there and play. I'm going to be right here. And they're like, no, I don't think so. And they want, like, they, like Velcro. Like, and you're like peeling them off. And you're like, no, really, go right there. I'm going to be right here. It would be very similar in saying, listen, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. And it's not just me, a very fallible dad, saying it. It's God, the eternal, perfect Father, saying, I will never, ever, ever. So whatever you fear, whatever security money's providing, whatever concern you have about the future, whatever you're wondering, like anything that is making you wrestle with not being generous and instead seeking, wanting more, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Replace it with him. Let me give you one final one. This is the one I think we don't talk about enough as it relates to this idea of greed, and that is the concept of justice. So we often hear contentment as a replacement. We hear um, maybe trust is a replacement or Christ is a replacement, but this idea of justice. Mahatma Gandhi makes the statement, earth provides enough to satisfy every man's needs, but not every man's greed. The idea that our measure of faithfulness toward God is often measured in the scriptures by how we treat the underprivileged. The way we interact with those who are less fortunate the way we care for those in need. In fact, his largest, Christ's largest critique of the religious leaders at his time was not just about, like, hey, you do all these religious shows. Yeah, he talked about that. And what he kept saying is you do all these religious shows, and in the meantime, you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You actually neglect caring for the orphan, the widow, those in poverty, you're finding ways to acquire more while your brother or sister goes without. This concept of justice is quite radical. I mean, we think about it. You could tithe, or far more than tithe, and at the same time still oppress the poor and the needy. You could be feeling all generous at the same time turning a blind eye to a person near you that's equally or more so in need. It's easy for us to justify kind of where we sit in our position from our vantage point, always looking to the one who has more in front of us and rarely turning to face or orient ourselves towards those who go without. And one of the ways, I think, that speaks or it, it kind of forces us to push back on this idea of greed is to consider our neighbor. 
to love our neighbor, to begin to, to, to ask the question, what does God want of me for those who don't go without? There are a few statements. St. Ambrose of Milan made this statement. If you have two shirts in your closet, one belongs to you and the other belongs to the man who has no shirt. It's been said, once the demands of necessity and propriety have been met, the rest belongs to the poor. This is my favorite. Cardinal George of Chicago makes this statement. The poor needs you to draw them out of their poverty, and you need the poor to keep you out of hell. As it says, it's easier for the rich man, or the camel, to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter into heaven. Right? These kind of statements aren't made lightly. They're made with this understanding that my love for my neighbor demonstrates my true love for God. And to just turn a blind eye is to understand or misunderstand this idea of greed and possessions and stuff. All right? Now, what I, my hope was, I outlined it from the beginning, and uh, I want to just remind you of it before we, um, before we close our time is simply this. Those five things, throughout this week, what's the one area of those five that you need to have a little time with God about? What's the one area that you have to ask yourself, where am I as it relates to justice? Where am I as it relates to contentment? Where am I as it relates to trust? And that would be our hope for this morning. Let me pray.